Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And we're in for extra time. Kia ora and welcome to Extra Time, I'm Stephen Houston. Well, funny old times again in New Zealand with the impact of COVID-19 on the sporting landscape. Netball's called off this weekend's round of the ANZ Premiership, but as we go to air, there's no decision on the final round of Super Rugby Aotearoa, but it's 2021 that the real focus is on now. Paddler Alicia Hoskin, she tells us about recovering from a life-threatening heart condition and trying to become an Olympic contender. And we look at how netball's leading the way with the influence of Māori and Pacifica culture on the ANZ Premiership teams. Right, well, the Crusaders have already won the title, so the match against the Blues at a sold-out Eden Park will actually have no impact on the competition outcome, while the Hurricanes are in Dunedin supposedly playing the Highlanders this weekend. A more pressing question, though, is what Super Rugby might look like next year. Will it be a rinse and repeat of Super Rugby Aotearoa, or New Zealand Rugby's hope of an eight-team competition involving two Australian sides and a Pacific team get off the ground? Clay Wilson has more. Superb tries, sell-out crowds and smiling administrators. Super Rugby Aotearoa has been an undoubted success. A format involving only the five New Zealand teams who have dominated in recent years was always expected to be good. Highlanders assistant coach Tony Brown says he's enjoyed it just as much as anyone. Well, I think it's actually been pretty exciting. You know, I think the players have enjoyed going to battle against the other New Zealand franchises and... It's always a tough challenge, but one that the players enjoy getting up for. The fans have come in their droves. Two sold-out matches each for the competition-winning Crusaders and the resurgent Blues, who have had an average home crowd of 37,000. That's double their 2019 average, and their chief executive, Andrew Hoare, says it's turned around a bleak financial outlook. Just like the tourism industry or any other uh, number of other industries, sport was in a hole. And so this has enabled us to keep the lights on. Um, And there was some pretty dark days leaving into COVID and a a lot of worries. It's not rivers of gold, but it definitely helps. It also raises questions about the future. New Zealand Rugby have said they favour an 8-10 to team format for 2021 and beyond. Andrew Hoare is clear what he'd like to see. Evenness of competition is really, really important. Not having massive mismatches. Putting the games on at times which are appealing to the public is vitally important. So being a fan-led competition is slightly better balanced than just being about high performance. I think we lost a bit of our integrity in that. The Blues and All Blacks' first five, Bowden Barrett, would love the hugely popular Sunday afternoon games to stay. It's a great way for fans to see out the weekend. Three o'clock's a great time to come out as a family. Kids are back in bed at a suitable hour and also we finish the game and can go out for dinner afterwards at a suitable time and you know it's not 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock by the time we get out of the change rooms. Such widespread enjoyment has led to calls for the locals only competition to be retained. But while the players have loved it as much as the fans, 
Barrett admits they have doubts it can be repeated. Probably won't be a model that's uh, consistent or will be repeated next year because yeah, there have been a few injuries and some pretty battered and bruised boys, but it is a brutal game and um, yeah, it's right up there with test match intensely. The Hurricanes coach Jason Holland says he knows where the players are coming from. It'll be awesome to play and again, it'll just be how we manage the timing of it, the buys, how we make sure to play well for this week. So the ideal competition is to get the Aussies in and, and if possible get the South Africans in, but we've just got to roll with whatever's there and but keep in mind that we can't run these guys into brick walls for week on, week out. With that in mind, it appears inevitable that Kiwi franchises will resume matches against teams from other countries from next year. Tony Brown, though, is reminding the decision-makers to be careful about making too many additions to Super Rugby Aotearoa. Every game's pretty tough. It takes a couple of days to get over. But, you know, in the end, I think you'd rather play in this comp than a, a diluted one where you can play average and, and still win games of rugby. New Zealand rugby now has to weigh all this up as it works out the way forward for Super Rugby amid the uncertainty created by COVID-19. For extra time... Clay Wilson. Right, well, joining us on the programme this week, uh, regular panellists Alice Soper and Hamish Biddle. Alice, if we start with you, 2021, there's a few options floating around, but time's running out. H- how do you see the uh, super rugby landscape unfolding next season as you, you gaze into your crystal ball? <laughs> well, it sounds at the moment like we've maybe pissed the Aussies off a wee bit, hasn't it? Because uh, from what I've read, going back and forth over the ditch, they're not too happy with the idea that we maybe only think that there's two to four teams that are worth any uh, type of good. But you have to say that's the case, though, isn't it? I mean, I remember back in the day where the Brumbies were something special and you actually got excited about what uh, playing an Australian team, but that's been a long time since that's been the case. So if we're having the arm wrestle with them, I'd be in favour of just keeping it local. I mean, the thing is, as much as, uh, you know, the, the blokes from the Blues got a spot on, right? It should be something that's being led by the fans, and you give the fans what they want, and heaven forbid they actually turn up for a stadium. So can we do that again, please? That'd be nice. Hamish, you're happy with Super Rugby Aotearoa? Yeah, fairly happy, and interesting to hear that Andrew Hoare's happy, and Tony Brown's happy, and Jason Holland is happy, and uh, fans are certainly happy. Um Players have had too much say. They continue to have too much say. So the knock-on things previously was that they had to do too much travel. Uh, they needed, they wanted less of that. They had to go in Africa and Argentina. They were reluctant to do things like sign up to a, um, a World Test Championship because they'd spend too much time on the road and the travel was building too much fatigue and it was too hard on them. They wanted to be based at home. Well, hell, they're based at home now and they don't like that either. <laughs> Um, most of us are on reduced wages. Some of us have lost jobs. Entire industries are going down the toilet. And these guys are on 100% wages, which they're happy to take. They're not asking for a pay cut, but they want to do less work. They want less intensity at work, and they want less of the work. They want um, borderline walkover matches against inferior opposition, which will give them um, a rest or a comparative rest and things like that. And I just think that that's, that's, that's just ridiculous, and I don't understand why we give so much credence to these people's opinions. And if they don't like it, they can go overseas. We listen to Bowden Barrett in that grab, and that's fantastic to hear from Bowden. He's got his view. He's going to be having his view from Japan, provided he's able to go there health-wise, but he's off on a sabbatical. So, again, he really doesn't have any cards to play in that game because he's actually bailing out on New Zealand. So I don't really respect his opinion in this, this instance. And so, overall, I think the only people who are reluctant to have a New Zealand model are the players, and frankly, they shouldn't be given the option of deciding um, what we're actually going to get end up with. Uh, to go back to your original 
conversation. I still have said, I still think we'll get five Australian teams and five New Zealand ones, and I don't think that's particularly palatable. But I think it's going to be hard to get a Pacific team off the ground. I think it's going to be even harder for Australia to acquiesce to New Zealand's demand for only two teams. I think that's unrealistic. So I think we, we will get a 10-team competition, which... New Zealanders will want to watch when New Zealand teams play each other, but the rest of the time it'll be a bore. And um, it will go back to sort of down the road we were before where public interest waned. And while the players were able to have some sort of easier games to play, the rest of us won't be watching. It's going to come back to bucks, though, isn't it? Dollars. I mean, financially, how sustainable is a Super Rugby Aotearoa? Well, people are happy to pay to watch it. Both yeah, yeah but TV rights, though, aren't you? Yeah. People around the world are watching it. The, the figures in Britain, yeah. for instance, are going through the roof. People, if you put on a, a, a good product, people will watch it. This is the thing that we have lost sight of is more teams doesn't mean more money. More teams just means more poor games. If you give the best against the best, people will watch and they are watching. And not only are they watching, they're paying to watch. And if that's the model's not sustainable, then, then then there's no sport that's sustainable because this is this is the creme de la creme. That said, though, the only reason people overseas are watching it is because they haven't got anything else to watch. Yes, but this is still a good product, is it not? Yeah, but are, are you going to be that keen to watch it when? The, I mean, if you're in England, the Premiership's back on. Just irrelevant of, of of maybe the standard, but I mean, you've got local teams there, which again feeds that whole thing about local people watching local teams. If the Super Rugby's on as well. Uh, are you really going to be up for, for watching that as well? I think if you're don't talking we'll about... To, sorry, go on, else. <laughs> no, I was going to say, I think if you're talking about, you know, uh, rugby viewing population, uh, very few of them, like, it's a small market anyway, internationally, I guess. And so if you're, if you're going to be selling a product, it's going to be for rugby purists, and then that's, the, that's going to be the product they're going to want to see. I mean, I've been seeing as well, like, I've, I've got a few people that I know internationally that are, are following the sport, and they're so, they've, they've been frothing for it. They've been excited. People in the U.S. as well, a lot of them. But well, I think, like um, Hamish said, people want to see the pinnacle of sport, and it does seem a shame that when we're looking at designing a, a competition from scratch, we're talking about ways to dilute it and make it easier. And, and making it easier means making it more boring. So can we not do that? Like, I just, come on, don't we want to try and play and compete with the best? Isn't it when we're doing that that it's the most fun for everybody to be getting involved with? And when it's the most fun, it's something that people actually want to buy? I just think any time you're bringing in extra things, it's going to be like, what's the point of it, though? Because there's going to be other costs off, off screen as well that will be attached to it. So as soon as you're travelling teams, as soon as you have to in a quarantine team for a stand-down period, like are we instead going to be talking about hosting all country, uh, all sorry, all teams in one country, because that's probably going to have to be the reality if we're talking COVID, because we're not out the woods yet either. So the idea that we're bringing other teams in, it's going to have to be, you know, costs involved with that. So cost benefit, you got to weigh it up, right? I just think that people in Exeter and Bristol and Bath, I mean, if they want to watch it, that's great. But what about us? We poor saps who 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 help keep rugby alive in this country, who volunteer at our rugby clubs, who man the sausage sizzle, who pull pints in the bar, who sell the club merch, you know. What about us? If we want to watch New Zealand teams playing New Zealand teams, if we're prepared to pay for it, do we not get a say? I mean, I really, I just think we're continually overlooked. We're continually asking a lot of the same people to keep giving to this game and getting nothing back in return. And I, I don't really want to hear from the players about how hard it is for them because it's really hard for a lot of people in New Zealand right now. On the field, Crusaders have won again. Off the field, though, they've dropped the trophy, quite literally, to Kotahi Aotearoa. What um, thoughts around around that? Things have gone quite horribly awry there, Alice. 
Oh, look, it does seem a real shame, but I think this is, to be honest with you, probably to be expected. How many times are people dropping trophies post? They're not necessarily the uh, most sober of evenings. People's hands probably weren't as good as they were on the field. I know that there's been many a story about things going awry. I don't think, look, I, I'm not one to think that this was something that was done intentionally. Um, maybe, maybe managers could have stepped in and, and taken that away as things got a bit more rowdy, but hey, these things happen, and I just hope that this can be um, it can be fixed and that, they, that it can be restor- uh, restored to its glory because it was a beautiful trophy, um, and it would be a shame um, to be seeing it destroyed, you know, and, and, and beat up. Sam Kane, All Black skipper, uh, another head knock, Hamish. I mean, how many head knocks is too many? Um, that's not for me to decide, but certainly I hope that Sam Kane's getting really good advice from people. And I think, I hope that he's getting really good care and he's been, um, having some really frank conversations with his coaches and with his family about what the future looks like, because, um, without giving a plug, Alice and I interviewed a guy, Steve Devine the other day who had to retire from rugby, um, due to ongoing concussions. And I, I don't want anyone to have to go through what Steve Devine's been through, whether they're a club player in All Black or whoever. That's that's repeated head injuries, <clears throat> excuse me, are, are really bad for your health. And Sam Kane has had a heap. Um, there's a lot of wear and tear in the position that he plays, and he's becoming worse for that wear and tear. Um, we were spoiled by someone like Richie McCaw. You know, he played that same open side position, and he was the All Blacks captain for 110 tests. And through that time, he kept his body in one piece. His form was amazing. But that's that's an exception. We've tried – I think we believe that players are going to be able to sustain that kind of level of performance, um, but it's not reality. You know, we, we have this situation now too where we are anointing captains a bit like a royal member of the family, and they ascend to the throne and then until they abdicate. Once upon a time, captains came and went. So we've appointed Sam Kane All Blacks captain, but really, I don't know if he's actually physically capable of doing it. And I don't think Kieran Reid was physically capable of doing it at the end of his tenure. I mean, I think this McCaw thing looms large here, and McCaw was an exception. Sam Kane's taking a lot of knocks, and I really think for the benefit of his career, he should think about whether he needs to keep playing. And certainly, I think, to hope that he's going to be the All Blacks captain going forward and towards a, a 2023 World Cup would be really wildly optimistic. Alice, do, do you think... That the, I suppose, feelings of rugby. I mean, there's all the talk around head protocols and education programs, but still at the the bottom line, there's still that whole tough guy image that I've got to keep on going. Yeah, and I think the the thing is here is like it's really different um, to be talking about uh, blowing a knee out and say if you did something really bad there, and then the rest of your life you're going to be walking with a limp. A limp is something quite different to what the you know cognitive impact of of long term sustained heat injury could be and it's it's quite a different thing and uh, so I think we, you know I always talk to the girls in my team I'm like your head's where your personality lives and I've seen people who have gone through some pretty um, terrible head knocks and they've had fundamental shifts in who they are as people um, and a lot of that is to do with the fact that you know they've been rattled around a bit too much and I just think we need to be a bit more serious and, and, and with that remembering that this is a part of your life and not your whole life and so this is you know like I say when you're in your 80s you're not at expecting necessarily for your knees to be any type of good, but you would hope that your brain is still up to it. So I think we need to be taking it seriously, and I actually think that needs to be the whole way down. Like I, uh, it was when I was over in the Premiership, they were really strict on us. We had to do full medicals before we started the season, 
we had baseline testing, and of course that was then used for um, any potential uh, head knocks. I haven't gone through that process here. Uh, it hasn't been something that I've received, well, definitely not at club level, which actually, to be honest with you, is probably higher risk because it's a bit more random, numbers are a bit more, you know, uh, dodgy, and, and people are in less good shape, so you're more inclined to take a couple of cheeky knocks. And it's at that level, too, that I think we need to be doing better and actually making sure that we've got those uh, happening at that point because if you look otherwise at a representative season, say, such as mine, I've been playing club now for a few uh, months and then we'll be going into the pride season. Well, if we do that and I haven't had baseline testing before the beginning of club, I could be carrying, you know, something, a knock around from the beginning. So I just think we need to maybe get things married up a bit better at all levels because we're going to be carrying players through that as they progress through pathways. So we also need to make sure that we're carrying those stats through too. So, look, we're doing better. We can always do more. Uh, still with player welfare, gymnastics. They've got an independent inquiry into bullying underway. Uh, the sports obviously had problems globally. Former WADA boss David Howman's going to lead the investigation here. But we've had issues, football, cycling, hockey, now gymnastics. Which sport's next, Hamish? Oh, look, I just think that any sport involving, particularly women, seems to be, um, you know, um, a real candidate for it. I just think that um, there's a lot of sort of fat shaming. There's a lot of pressure to look a certain way. There's a lot of pressure around food and body image and all sorts of stuff. And I'm not the right person to talk about it, but I just think it's really naive to just think that oh, everything's hunky-dory, um, you know, or to just think, oh, look, there's this documentary on. Let's see, let's ring these people up and see if there's any issues in their sport. Like, I just think across the board, let's be real about things. There's a there's a lot of pretty nasty stuff happening below the surface in, in sport, um, whether it's um, this kind of stuff that you're talking about, whether it's uh, match-fixing, spot-fixing, drug-taking, these things all occur. And I know people don't like to talk about it, and the people probably think, listen to this dick. But it's actually true. These things happen all the time in plain sight. There are people across the world who are lauded for their achievements who are cheats, who miss tests, who have therapeutic use exemptions for things that they're not entitled to. You know what I mean? It's just... So, so what are you saying? We don't, is, don't don't talk about it, or, or what? What are you, what are you the trying to say there? Is, I'm saying the sports world is utterly corrupt, and I think people should be looking at it all the time. And it's not isolated to like a couple of things here and there. Like, I mean, we're all suddenly this experts on gymnastics. Well, let's let's have a look at every sport because I just think there's some really ugly things happening across the board. A look in what in what perspective? I mean, in what way? What some launch independent investigations into every sport? Well, just look at things like objectively, like performances that don't make sense, you know, like the people are cheating, you know what I mean, I've been I've talked intimately through, let's say in cricket how to spot fix, like and you watch games, once you're armed with that knowledge and you see things that are corrupt you know what I mean, there are cheats in sports like fair income, I don't want to impugn anyone so I'm not going to be careful what I say but sports like cycling are just an absolute cesspit, you know what I mean, and if people want to look at and take results seriously, good luck to them, but I think that's really naive and I just think you know, gymnastics was last week's story and everyone was really hot on it, but let's have a look at all sports because there's some pretty dusty things out there. Sounds like we might as well give up watching sport. No, but just like, let's, I just, authenticity and transparency are important to me and I just think there's a lack of it and uh, I think people should watch things, you know, with a critical eye and we should ask questions, that's all. Alistair, I mean, where's tough coaching end and bullying start? Is that is that part of the problem? 
Look, I think I get a frustration I hear a lot, uh, often, about how different it is to coach women compared to men. And it's just bullshit. I mean, the reality is, is that a lot of the time when you're coaching women, you're coaching a whole range of experiences all at once. And so, yes, you have to probably explain something a little bit more to certain players, because that might be the first time they've ever turned up at a training, versus someone else such as myself, that you can say one thing and I'll get it, because I've had the experience to understand what's going on. I think that there's a lot of stuff too when, let's be real, talking about women's coaching experience, we get the worst type of coaches. We don't often get the, the top tier. We get blokes that failed as men's coaches or we get, if we're lucky, we get someone that's trying to make their name by t- taking us in the women's section and then transferring across. Uh, there's lots of dodgy stuff. Mate, I can tell you <laughs> how many teams, I think every like club I've been involved with, there's been some sort of thing that's gone on around uh, managers or coaches sleeping with players. There's some fundamental uh, lack of boundaries and, and, and understanding there. Like, that's just, you know, consensual uh, relationships, not to mention things that are a bit dodgy that happen outside of that. There's, um, there, but unfortunately, the reality is this is what it's like to be a woman in the world, let alone a woman that plays sport, let alone a woman that plays sports and infrastructure that is basically set up for men. So there is a lot of things that need to change. And I say full credit to our um, gymnastics sister who, t- who took that out to, to speak up. That's incredibly brave to do that. She'll no doubt be getting a lot of blowback on that too, because that's the other thing too. As soon as anybody says anything, they're all a bunch of liars. But <sighs> it's unfortunately so much more common. And I, I say this often to people who ask me what it's like being a woman's rugby player. I say most of the time I head down the rugby club, local rugby club, I'll have one of two conversations with the people that are there. One will be a bit sleazy and won't be appreciated. And the other will probably be telling me that I actually shouldn't be there because why are women playing rugby? So there's a lot of attitudes that need to change across the board in terms of women's sport. Um, you, you touched on a good point there, Alice. I mean, the, I, I mean that whole gymnastics story. It took it took a while for people to actually um, be prepared to put their name to the to the comments in the sense because they they were worried about the the, the blowback on it. And yeah, but so we still haven't moved terribly forward. It would seem when it comes to sort of whistleblowing. Yes. And I think that that's part of the problem, right? Like, so I've been talking recently with our local union about basically changing things up within the Wellington club scene to make them more, more woman-friendly spaces. And part of that was, you know, saying that, hey, we need to have an independent complaints process locally. They said, look, we've got NZR. That's how you can go through and make a complaint. Well, look, if, I'm a, if I've been challenged by something at the club by uh, one moment, maybe by my local coach, it's going to feel like I'm pulling a heck of a lever to be going to NZR for that. You know, and it's these little instances that are actually the beginnings of patterns of behaviour, right? So we need to be able to have uh, local issues dealt with locally and so that there can be processes there too so people can feel it's safe to be reporting even the small stuff. Because chances are if they've done something dodgy with you, they've been doing it for a while and it's just a matter of cases before things bubble over. We had an instance like that at our club uh, where someone was dismissed last year for saying a whole series of inappropriate things to players. And, you know, this was someone that we'd known for a while had that type of character. So, you know, I'd seen them do make inappropriate jokes a couple of times. So it didn't surprise me that this was something that was done. But everyone was very surprised when then the complaint was made. But it's like, well, just talk to us for five minutes and we can tell you who the ones that we feel safe around, who the ones that we're like, oh, roll the eyes at, who the ones that we don't really want to be uh, participating with, you know, and I think having these opportunities, that was the reason you know, and the point that I made to Wellington Rugby is it's also important to be able to track it have a pattern, 
You need to be having these, you know, as much as these, it's important that these complaints are anonymous, it's also important to understand if it keeps coming from the same club or if it keeps coming from the same area or, or, or coach attached to it, we need to build a pattern of behaviour so that then we can know that that's where the education, where the resources need to go in because something's a bit off. Alice Soper, Hamish Bidwell, interesting as always. Thank you for your time on Extra Time this week. Having overcome a life-threatening heart condition, there's not too much that now phases Olympic-bound paddler Alicia Hoskin these days. The 20-year-old Hoskin's enjoying a short break at home in Gisborne after completing another canoe sprint camp on Lake Karapiro. Hoskin would have expected to have been competing in her first ever Olympics, but that wasn't to be after the Tokyo Games were pushed back a year, and it's not something that's bothering her too much. That's because just three years ago, she underwent heart surgery, which not only threatened her career, but also her life. In 2017, just a few weeks before she was about to compete at the Junior World Champs, she was diagnosed with Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome that affects the electrical pulses in the heart. She spoke to Barry Guy about what she's come through to get to the top of her sport. I still remember sitting in the changing room getting the call from my dad saying that I needed to stop and that the results hadn't come back very good. And I think I just hung up on him and burst into tears So it definitely, I was not expecting any of that kind of news. And that's when I started putting all the pieces together that I might not be able to paddle. And yeah, it was a lot for a a 17-year-old to take in, especially because I dreamed of this day for so long. How long sort of after that did you get back into it? I started racing the next season, but obviously wasn't very fast at all, which was also quite sad because... Part of my brain just thought that I would go back to being as fast as I was before everything happened. But obviously it took a lot of time and a lot of a lot of uh, cries on the river to slowly get back to where I was. Yeah, so the next year is when I came up to Auckland and the coaches up in Auckland and the high performance squad pretty much were still helping me get back on my feet again. Did you follow the uh, world regatta? Yep, I sure did. I was cheering them on from in the hospital because, yeah, it was the same day that I was going in for the procedure. So I had had the live stream as I was preparing for surgery. Do you sort of look back at that now and sort of think, wow, you know, and here I am possibly going to get to the Olympics? Yeah, so I did remember one of the um, surgeons or um, cardiologists that I met along the way He was quite inspiring and he showed me a young girl from America who was an athletics runner, I think, who had had the same procedure as me. And a few years later, she was on the national team again and sort of showed me her progression. So that's when, that's what gave me the hope, I think. And I realized that if I followed the guidelines of the recovery and everything, that eventually I would be able to get back. And so, yeah, to look back now and know that training with some incredibly inspiring kayakers in New Zealand and, you know, achieving some of my own goals, it's, it's pretty awesome. Uh, and if you get to the Olympics, do you think you'll look back and think, oh, that was just a little bit of a blip, or do you think perhaps it's uh, helped you in some way? Uh, it for sure has helped me, just because when you ha- are forced to have a month or two of not doing what you love, you sort of reflect on it about why you do that or, 
you know, is this really something that's important to me? Is this something that I want to do if I am fully recovered again? And the answer to all of those was yes. And I was so eager to get back on the water that it kind of just reminded me of how much I love it and that I do it, you know, I do it for myself to achieve my own goals. But, you know, it's just a really important part of my life. So, yeah, I think I'll look back on that as a bit of a personal growth as well. That's kayaker Alicia Hoskin talking to Barry Guy. 61 Tess Silverfern and former coach of Samoa, Linda Wagner, says she can identify with a new study which has examined the growing influence of Māori and Pacifica players on the culture of ANZ Premiership netball teams. Several Māori and Pacifica coaches were interviewed for the University of Auckland report which was commissioned by Netball New Zealand. Four of the six teams have Māori or Pacifica coaches in charge and the report says that has meant that franchises have a much better understanding of those cultures and beliefs. Wangana was a regular in the Silver Ferns from 1995 to 2002 and told Bridget Tunnicliffe coaches can play a big role in both the understanding and development of team culture. When you've got some of your Māori and Pacifica players looking up to and seeing and recognising that they've got someone that looks like them um, at, the, at the helm and um, or someone that understands them, then you're obviously going to get um, you know, reciprocal performance and um, communication and it's only what we can hope for the best really sometimes um, but when you've got coaches who are representing um, and adding value and strengthening what, what can be in, in the coaching space it's really neat and I, and I guess you can see that now through the performance of teams like the Pulse um, and Mystics. I must say though it's a, it's a hard one to you know, it's a, an equation that it's really hard to get right and I think netball are getting there and celebrate the fact that we've got um, some diversity in, in the coaching level because um, it's something that's been missing for a long time. One thing that stood out to me uh, in the report was, you know, the Pacifica players particularly a, a lot of religious and I think it was a Mystics player said that a few years ago they set up a, a prayer group for the Pacifica players in the Northern Mystics. Is that something that might have happened in your day, in your day of playing? Oh, God, yeah. Um, mm. It was, you know, for, for me being a, um, a minister's daughter, and I, I can report, recall when I first made the Silverstone squad and wasn't quite in the team, um, but had a headline in the Herald that said um, Sunday no bother um, because I had shared the fact that I was very fortunate to be um, still doing something that I loved on a Sunday you know using the skills that were gifted to me you know these are skills that um, God has imparted on, on, on me and I'm going to use it um, every opportunity I get which was quite different at the time when you had the likes of um, uh, Michael, Michael Michael Jones, yeah, Michael Jones, and um, and Anna who were at the peak of their careers and decided not to play on Sundays. So there were different views there. And then when that heading was done, um, I almost got in trouble for uh, for that article coming out. But 
Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I was very fortunate to have um, in my first sort of term with the Silver Ferns um, a coach that understood, you know, who I was as a person and who I should say we were as a family um, growing up in, in Auckland and, and being part of a very religious family and accepted that. And, you know, as we got our South African friends um, with Irene Van Dyke and yeah, a lot of our Māori and Pacific girls who were already in there. Um, we did make those opportunities available for um, for us to to make use of our free time where we can just be together and and have a prayer or um, you know have a Bible study. And it's it's something that's a huge part of all Pacific teams. You mentioned, I think, style of play earlier, and that um, sometimes there can be negative connotations. But the report sort of highlighted coaches who are saying that that's what sets us apart and that's what makes New Zealand netball strong in many respects. I can remember from the very first time being out on the court and at a representative regional level and, you know, someone talking about having that natural flair. Um, Auckland at the time, as a netball region, were uh, at the top of their game, winning 10 years in a row under Yvonne. And she had a lot of Pacifica players in, in Māori and the, and the expression was that they had natural flair, and it always used to confuse me how um, natural flair was almost a term or a label that dismissed the actual skills that you know we, as a, as a group of people, um, you know, these were skills that we were, I guess, intrinsically um, that were part of our heritage and our geniality because of the type of bodies that we have and the type of work that we did, and it was kind of. Well, hang on a minute. It's, you don't you don't call this natural talent. This is all part of something that's been who we are as a people, and so um, was always confused by that term. But I I really love the fact that it's um, something that a lot of coaches have seen as a as a real asset to any team. The more diverse that you can get as a team, as opposed to trying to look like everybody else in the competition, um, that only adds and strengthens the value of a team, doesn't it? That's former Silver Fern Linda Vangana talking to Bridget Tunnicliffe. And that brings us to the end of Extra Time for another week. My thanks again to Hamish Bidwell and Alice Soper for joining us on the programme this week. I'm Stephen Houston. Bye for now. of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.